0: HIV in the Adolescent Patient by Dr. Rana Chakraborty.
1: Good morning. My name is Rana Chakraborty. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. The title of my talk is HIV Management Challenges in Youth, Providing Care from the Cradle to the Rave. I have no faculty disclosure information. I'd like to sort of begin initially uh, with a case uh, that we... uh, was previously described by a close colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Lynn Moffinson, when she was here at Boston Children's Hospital. She described a two-year-old male with severe malnutrition, developmental delay, thrush, recurrent infections and fever, unresponsive to antibiotics, persistent diarrhea without any etiology. Uh, and she noted that the parents had alcohol, drug abuse, and social problems. In terms of investigations, Uh, The two-year-old was anemic and leukopenic, had low T cell counts. At that time, back in 1977, these were called E rosette-forming cells, and these were reduced both in number and in function. At the same time, the child had hypergamma globulinemia, uh, and there was a negative workup. The child required hyperalimentation for failure to thrive, uh, and unfortunately became hypoxic, developed diffused infiltrates. Uh, and had acidosis, was noted to have pneumococcal bacteremia, and unfortunately, despite broad spectrum antibiotics, died. At autopsy, uh, there was chronic esophageal ulcers, noted. There was also candida, myeloid hypoplasia of the bone marrow, uh, deficiency of lymphoid follicles in the spleen, lymph node, and thymus. There was also thymic dysplasia with secondary atrophy and fibrosis. Uh, The blood and pleural fluid grew out pneumococci. And CSF grew candida. There was concern for a T-cell immunodeficiency, but the etiology wasn't really identified, although there was speculation that this could have been Nezoloff syndrome. I'd like to fast forward now, 38 years ahead, and describe a patient that I saw. 17-year-old male having sex with other males, he supported himself with survival sex, lives with a grandmother at times and at other times on the street, has a history of crack cocaine, uh, current tobacco and marijuana use, and abuses alcohol. He was admitted uh, to the, into the hospital where I work at, Grady Health Systems in Atlanta, Georgia, with a 50-pound weight loss, visual changes, and altered mental status. He was diagnosed with neurosyphilis, tuberculous meningitis, and HIV-AIDS. A CD4 count done at the time showed just five T-cells with a viral load of 50,000 copies. He received two weeks of intravenous penicillin for neurosyphilis and started a four-drug regimen for tuberculous meningitis. This included rifampicin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. Follow-up at, cl- at the clinic where I work at, the Ponce Family and Youth Clinic, uh, which is involved in HIV management, uh, he started to receive combination antiretroviral therapy. He completed four months of uh, antituberculosis therapy with a four-drug regimen, followed by eight months of a two-drug regimen. In my clinic, we started him on cotrimoxazole, or Bactrim prophylaxis and azithromycin prophylaxis for pneumocystis jureveci and mycobacterium avium intracellular, respectively. Antiretroviral uh, therapy that he was commenced on at the time included uh, darunavir, which was boosted by ritonavir. These are protease inhibitors. And the fixed-dose combination of Truvada, which includes tenofovir and emtricitabine. In clinic, we also changed his therapy from uh, rifampicin because of the potential for drug interactions with durunovir to rifabutin. These are some of the illustrations that we saw at follow-up as an outpatient. He developed another bout of uh, syphilis. And you can see quite nicely the coppery lesions on his palms and soles. He also had anal condylomas. During the time I saw him, he also developed scabies and a possible uh, allergy uh, to uh, cotrimoxazole and requiring change, changement of prophylaxis to Dapsen. Unfortunately, the patient was inconsistent about appointments and adherence to medications. He was lost to follow-up, and I wondered about the health consequences to this patient and to, uh, in res- and also in respects of secondary HIV transmission. These two cases really, for me, highlight uh, aspects of the changing epidemic uh, as far as uh, pediatric management is concerned, from what we saw potentially in 1977 with the child with HIV infection to what we're seeing a lot now uh, amongst youth uh, coming in with horizontal HIV-1 transmission. So this lecture today will address the epidemiology of the HIV epidemic among adolescents and young adults. In the US and globally, uh, why youth are so vulnerable to HIV acquisition and a range of associated negative health outcomes, what are the outcomes of this vulnerability in the setting of HIV during adolescence, and what practice interventions there are to improve these outcomes related to linkage, retention, and adherence to life saving antiretroviral therapy. These are all part of the HIV care continuum. Also, going to discuss a little bit about prevention. Uh, and transition of patients into adult-based care.
0: Epidemiology.
1: So in terms of the epidemiology, um, these are data that are freely available on the web from the CDC. It sort of highlights the uh, rates of diagnosis of HIV infection uh, amongst adolescents aged 13 to 19. But if you focus in now amongst the 20 to 24-year-olds who are living uh, or have been diagnosed with HIV, you can see that there's a, we're kind of in the midst of an epidemic, particularly in the southeastern corner of the United States, and where I practice, particularly in Atlanta, Georgia, has been, uh, put, uh, has been uh, strongly hit, uh, where we are seeing large numbers of uh, youth coming in with a new diagnosis of HIV infection. So one of the questions is, well, apart from being uh, localized very heavily in the southeastern corner, what are the other aspects of the epidemic? Well, originally amongst the 13 to 19-year-olds, we previously saw sort of relatively equal numbers of males and females. However, if we move forward now to the 20 to 24-year-olds, what we're seeing is a predominance of young men aged uh, in that 20 to 24-year-old age group and uh, fewer females. What we're also seeing are large numbers of young African-American men coming into these clinics in the South with a new diagnosis of HIV infection compared to uh, other racial groups. And in addition to that, the other risk factor that seems to be uh, quite uh, common uh, is that these young men have acquired infection, like in the case that I described uh, Uh, earlier in the lecture, of um, young men having sex with other men. Well, that's all very well. Why are these numbers so important for pediatricians? Well, because 13 to 24-year-olds account for an estimated 26% of new HIV infections in 2012. That's the fastest growing group of new infections here in the US. And most of these infections occurred among young, gay, and bisexual males, with a 22% increase in estimated new infections in this group from 2008 to 2010. Worryingly, almost 60% of youth with HIV in the United States don't even know that they're HIV-infected. And as I alluded to in my practice, that's hit home very hard uh, in Georgia. Uh, Georgia ranked fifth highest in the US for its cumulative reported AIDS cases through December 2010, and number one in new infections in 2012. 50% of these new infections in Georgia occur amongst youth aged 16 to 24. And it really is a significant worry, borne out by the next statistic. And this is from a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Patrick Sullivan. Uh, working at the Rollins School of Public Health in Emory University, who uh, has the, the key figure, the key statistic shown over here, that by, is that by age 39, 60% of African-American males having sex with other males residing in Atlanta, a metropolitan statistical area, already have HIV infection. That's an enormous figure. What are we seeing amongst youth globally? in terms of new HIV infections? Well, this is some old UNAIDS data that you, you're quite, you may be familiar with. Um, and it shows the preponderance of uh, children under the age of 15 with HIV infection, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. But when we break down pictures in the pediatric population a little bit more closely, we note that about 2 million adolescents, that's an estimate, Aged 10 to 19 with HIV infection. But in contrast to the description that we're seeing in the southeastern United States, two thirds of these new infections occur in females, most often by heterosexual transmission. We estimate there are about 4.3 million young adults aged 15 to 24 with HIV, but we're not sure what percentage of this are actually from perinatal transmission versus horizontal transmission. These are the crude numbers. Uh, They were recently presented by Dr. Annette Song uh, at the CROI meeting, which took place in Boston in 2016. Uh, And you see a preponderance of infections, particularly amongst young people in sub-Saharan Africa. This is perhaps shown a little bit more clearly in the pie chart over here, where we see the epidemic amongst youth both in sub-Saharan Africa, and also in Asia.
0: Vulnerability factors.
1: So uh, the question is, why are youth perhaps more at risk? And if we look from a neurobehavioral point of view, we see that uh, the amygdala is important for instinctual reactions. And that seems to predominate um, uh, early on uh, during adolescence. And there is perhaps less of an influence from the frontal cortex. And that's then sort of uh, manifested with uh, this predominant activity of the amygdala uh, with what we see in young people, uh, and I can attest this because having teenagers at home, uh, there's a tendency towards uh, disorganization, distractibility, messiness, and forgetfulness. and an uh, in intolerance to parental demands, which again, I can sort of attest to, and risk-taking behavior, uh, even amongst uh, those of us who have gone on to significant roles in government. And that's probably demonstrated uh, from, this, uh, from this data from the CDC, which takes place uh, every two years. And this was the, the last iteration for the Youth Risk Behavior Survey which really showed that by uh, uh, 12th grade, uh, 64% of uh, high schoolers uh, had already had sex. And that figure uh, was about 30% uh, when they entered into ninth grade. So the, the, the other caveat that's important for pediatricians is that oftentimes in a clinic, Sometimes the young folks may be a little eco- uh, economical um, with the truth when you when you ask questions directly, and to sort of demonstrate that, a colleague of mine, Dr. Ralph De Clemente, working in Atlanta, uh, did an ACASI or um, uh, audio computer-assisted self-interviewing survey, uh, and at the same time obtained urine samples for chlamydia, uh, gonorrhea, and a PCR for trichinomas. Uh, Remarkably, 10% of subjects with a positive sexually transmitted infection screen reported abstaining from sexual intercourse in the previous 12 months. And 6% reported never, ever having um, uh, penile or vaginal sex despite testing positive for a sexually transmitted infection screen. There are other factors that uh, lend lend themselves to um, vulnerability. Uh, Some work looking at the vaginal uh, microbiome uh, published a few years ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, looked at lactobacilli uh, and the uh, physical development of the cervix and noted uh, amongst 400 individuals uh, from four ethnic groups, Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian. Uh, They were sampled uh, for uh, composition by pyrosequencing for 16S ribosomal RNA genes. What the investigators seemed to show was that the proportions of lactobacilli species and vaginal pH differed between the four ethnic groups. And these patterns were associated with higher or lower scores, uh, which were associated as a risk factor for a diagnosis of bacterial vaginosis. Uh, which is also associated with STI acquisition and HIV acquisition. But beyond that, there are other uh, clear risk factors that are much more clear-cut and direct. I am going to talk a little bit about stigma, discrimination, trauma, and stressful life events that predict vulnerability to HIV acquisition and a range of negative health outcomes. Uh, oftentimes, and some of the young people that are coming to my clinic report a history of being homeless, runaway, uh, come from single or no-parent uh, backgrounds, uh, are graduates of the foster care system, and often come to Atlanta uh, reporting trauma and see the city as a place of refuge. Maybe to confirm these anecdotal observations, the CHASE study published... Uh, about 10 years earlier, uh, examined the prevalence of childhood trauma in 611 HIV-positive subjects uh, from North Carolina. 33% uh, reported childhood, uh, and 50% reported lifetime sexual and severe physical abuse, respectively. And in these individuals who are at this point HIV-positive, they also had worse negative health outcomes. Uh, including higher healthcare u- utilization, higher sexual transmission risk behaviors, lower adherence to life-saving combination antiretroviral therapy, uh, more opportunistic infections, and higher all-cause and AIDS-related mortality. Many reported that they had older sexual partners who themselves I'd had multiple sexual partners and this placed these individuals at a point of vulnerability not only in terms of sexually transmitted uh, infection acquisition but also an inequality in relationships and the final factor that seems to uh, contribute to this uh, vulnerability um, is a lack of access uh, uh, to health care amongst youth and a historical mistrust um, of healthcare services that I particularly see uh, in my practice location in the south. This lack of a- access to, is highlighted in youth. Uh, about 25 to 30 percent have no health insurance amongst adolescents and young adults. And these individuals often rely on emergency room visits for their primary care. About 40 percent receive preventive vi- visits only. And just approximately 15% spend time alone with their uh, medical doctor. In terms of the historical mistrust, I won't go into too many details, but many know uh, about the tragic study, the Tuskegee study, um, which was closed down in the early 70s, where uh, treatment for syphilis uh, was denied uh, to a cohort of African American men. Uh, Based on that particular history, and those unethical studies, there are oftentimes situations where patients uh, will express concern and mistrust of healthcare facilities, um, quoting uh, particularly uh, the Tuskegee study. And so this has translated into uh, a vulnerability amongst different racial groups. There are unequal risks in the United States. African-Americans constitute 12% of the US population, but comprise close to 50% of all cases of AIDS. In Georgia, those numbers are 30 and 77%, respectively. And there are unequal risks amongst uh, men having sex with men. And just really showing uh, Dr. Sullivan's data again, that by age 39, 60% of African American you know, men having sex with men from Atlanta already had HIV infection. Outcomes. So, what are the outcomes during adolescence in terms of adherence to life saving uh, antiretroviral therapy? Well, for to address this, you actually have to look into the two different groups of both perinatally infected and horizontally infected um, individuals. Uh, Amongst perinatally infected youth, disclosure becomes incredibly important, and having, especially if they're neurodevelopmentally and neurocognitively age appropriate, becomes really important to um, choose the correct time to disclose HIV status. Anecdotally, uh, I remember a case of a young man uh, who. Uh, was uh, cared for was in the foster care system and then was adopted. Uh, he was unaware that he was adopted, and he was also unaware of his HIV status. Uh, when discussions were made in the clinic to disclose at the ripe old age of 16, uh, this young man fell out of care uh got involved with gang and criminal activity and was incarcerated. He came back to clinic, um, and at that point, his CD4 count uh, was uh, just 33, and uh, he already had opportunistic in- infections with thrush and pneumonia, which needed management. He also had a bullet lodged in his spine, uh, having engaged in high-risk behavior and uh, having Uh, been shot by members of an opposing gang. Many perinatally infected youth uh, also complain of a loss of emotional support. And this is compounded by a loss of uh, significant others, uh, including mothers uh, and fathers, uh, oftentimes to AIDS. Uh, there are conditions that, are, that also impair their development. There's a condition called HIV encephalopathy, and that impacts significantly in terms of their cognitive function and their developmental uh, function. Many have uh, had side effects from the, com- from the regimens that they've received over the years, and in addition to that, have uh, a number of opportunistic or previously developed opportunistic infections and conditions directly related to HIV. In contrast, horizontally infected youth uh, oftentimes have issues of non-disclosure to the parent or guardian, which oftentimes may reveal uh, behaviors that their their, uh, guardians may have been unaware of. There are also issues in terms of secondary transmission and non-disclosure to partners and as sort of shown in the second case in this presentation, there are high rates of homelessness and incarceration uh, that also contribute um, uh, to challenges in their overall management, in addition to high-risk sexual behavior. And that's sort of played out in the what we call the HIV care continuum, or the treatment cascade. And I'm just sort of going to highlight uh, what we what we're seeing, and uh, if you just focus on the f- first four blocks amongst the 13 to 24 year olds amongst males, the first block really shows a number of individuals aged 13 to 24 who are diagnosed with HIV infection. The second block along, which is 57%, um, uh, shows individuals who are engaged in healthcare. Uh, shows those who are retained. And just 28% have virologic suppression. So that means just under a third, at least in Georgia, from data going back, albeit to 2012, seem to show that uh, many youth are not adhering to life-saving antiretroviral therapy, which has obviously a negative impact on their own health care and puts them at risk of uh, secondary transmission events or transmitting to other individuals. Those numbers appear to be marginally better uh, amongst females from Georgia. Now what are are those rates like overall nationwide? Is Georgia an aberration? Well, perhaps not really. Amongst horizontally infected youths aged 12 to 26, overall just 27% were suppressed. And amongst perinatally infected youth uh, in that same age group, uh, just 37% suppressed their virus using combination antiretroviral therapy. Other individuals fell out of care or didn't take their medications. And that was also reflected in the PACTG uh, 219 study, uh, which demonstrated 10% increase in the odds of non-adherence for each year of age but more importantly, showed that amongst perinatally infected youth, the median number of antiretroviral regimens was five. Then there are a limited number of drugs available, and to use that many combinations suggests uh, that we would be running out of medications with, with, with which to treat their HIV. F- approximately 50% had dual-class resistance, and 12% triple-class resistance. But there is a concern that if that pattern also stays the same with the newer generation of drugs, like the integrase inhibitors, then again, we run the risk of running out of suitable medications with which to treat HIV. And many attribute this to medication fatigue and a high pill burden and increased responsibility for a chronic illness, oftentimes with limited support. Many also note that uh, they complain about the complications associated with taking the medications. And we've known um, over the years some of these complications, which include metabolic, which affect uh, bone density and bone mineralization, which impact on the liver and the kidney. Um, And because of the metabolic complications, there are... There are changes in fat accumulation, there's fat redistribution, oftentimes centripetal in nature, so that fat uh, can redistribute from the face and arms peripherally uh, and present itself around uh, the abdomen, uh, giving the impression of obesity and perhaps making the patient feel that they don't want to continue taking these medications. Globally, as I said, we have about 2 million 10 to 19-year-olds with HIV, and most of these are women in contrast to what we see in the US, uh, and overall 4.5 four million 15 to 24-year-olds. Uh, these numbers are shown by some data again from Dr. Son, uh, where she looked at a number of cohorts uh, and showed sort of the absolute numbers uh, of individuals uh, with HIV. And although the age groups look quite reassuring that we have 12 to 16-year-olds and the CD4 counts look pretty good, one of the concerns is that there's no reliable estimate of the proportion of adolescents in low- and middle-income countries uh, living with HIV who are currently receiving combination antiretroviral therapy. And maybe sort of some of the data to highlight uh, lost to follow up is from this uh, from this work from uh, Muglin and co-workers in Malawi. These were individuals who uh, received the option uh, option B plus. These were mainly females. And what we what is what we can see if you look on the um, blue line on the curve on the right hand side. Now, 63 percent of the group were females. We noticed that those on the Option B plus program uh, seem to have actually been lost to follow-up compared to those who previously were not on the Option B plus. Now the reasons for being lost to follow-up may vary. It could be uh, related to vicinity and travel to a clinic and, uh, at a major city center in, in that country and the ability for tra- to, to have that transportation there and back. But there is also a concern that there, there is a worry about treatment fatigue as well uh, in these individuals, similar to what you see in the United States. And that's translated into the absolute numbers of adolescents dying with HIV. And on this uh, graph that you can see, I show the absolute numbers. but. Perhaps this graph really tells the story that HIV-AIDS is the leading cause of death amongst adolescents in sub-Saharan Africa, in all these countries highlighted in purple. To summarize globally, and this data is still limited, perinatally infected adolescents are aging up. And that's a good thing. Maybe a reflection that many are receiving antiretroviral therapy. Health and program outcomes, uh, however, can be worse than uh, for adults, but data really vary. There are medical complications and treatment fatigue like we see here in the US. And that could be compounded by poor access um, and uptake and retention, uh, also associated with virologic suppression, poor, low rates of virologic suppression. Overall, the global mortality rate in this age group Looks pretty bad. So, what are the challenges in terms of HIV prevention, and what are the um, what, what can we do be doing more? Um, and again, we have to look into the two different groups. Some data amongst perinatally infected youth uh, appeared to show that about ninety percent had survived into adolescence, and that about forty-five percent of youth in the, in this particular cohort from the UK had been sexually active. Forty-three percent of HIV-positive youth report not using condoms at the last intercourse, and a quarter admitted to inconsistent condom use, and they frequently engaged in high-risk behaviors. Forty to 60% continued to engage in unprotected sexual intercourse after learning their status, and about a quarter became pregnant by their 19th birthday. Uh, data from the US, um, from uh, uh, actually from Harvard, uh, uh, looked at uh, an ACASI in 370 youth uh, over 10 years. And from that, they reported that close to 30% were sexually active, 67% had, of 18-year-olds had initiated sex. This number was very similar. Uh, to the youth risk behavior survey data that I presented amongst 12th graders earlier on in this presentation. And that the meaning age of of initiation was 13 amongst males and 14 amongst females. There are a number of studies uh, sort of looking at the 277 pregnancies amongst 231 perinatally infected girls. The take-home message was that the majority of pregnancies were unplanned. Elective termination was not uncommon. Repeat pregnancy was not uncommon. There were adverse pregnancy outcomes, including miscarriage, preterm birth, small for gestational age, and low birth weight in one study. But fortunately, mother to child transmission events uh, were uncommon. So what about horizontally infected youth? Well, as I sort of alluded to, there's oftentimes low perception of risk. Um, Youth are oftentimes more likely to take risks. There are low rates of testing, low rates of condom use, high rates of sexually transmitted infections. Oftentimes, uh, young folks uh, have older partners. There are concerns about substance abuse, and that's mixed in with poverty and homelessness, inadequate HIV prevention education, particularly that problem that we see in the South. There are feelings of isolation, lack of access, and mistrust of healthcare, And many engage, like the patient that I described earlier, in survival sex. And they report trauma and stigma, and there are racial differences. And this was sort of shown in the REACH study, uh, which also showed that many young people who are coming into clinics uh, have significant immune dysfunction, have low T cell counts. If you recall the case that I presented, that individual had just five T cells when he received health care. Uh, they're more likely to have a condition called immune reconstitution syndrome, which is basically an overreaction to the presence of uh, either viruses, herpes viruses, or mycobacteria once the T cells start remobilizing. And some also came in uh, having HIV, which was resistant to a number of drugs, including the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. So the profile of a young person that I often see coming into clinic is an individual who's homeless and hungry unemployed with few job prospects, reports being constantly stigmatized and exposed to violence, has a mental health diagnosis, oftentimes associated with a lot of self-loathing and denial, Is at further engages in further risk behavior, which puts uh, other individuals at risk of secondary HIV transmission, may have poor insight into HIV is often difficult to engage in care, has limited social support, and comes in with CD4 counts in single or double digits, and recurrent opportunistic infections and sexually transmitted infections.
0: Interventions. Well, that's the problem.
1: So what are the interventions that are out there to improve these health outcomes? And this is in relation to the HIV care continuum, namely linkage, retention, and adherence and also in respect of prevention. Well, one of the key things a provider needs to remember is you can't just throw pills at the problem. With patients coming in, you have to address mental health. That's very key. And whether they're using substances, whether it's drug abuse. And also look at some of the socioeconomic factors. If you have patients where you're giving the latest combination, fixed-dose combination, antiretroviral regimen, and the individual just happens to be living under a bridge and doesn't know when his or her next meal will come from, you may in the long term be doing a disservice if you don't address those other issues. The clinic where I work at is called the Ponce Family and Youth Clinic. It's part of Grady Health System. It's the largest pediatric and adolescent HIV clinic in the U.S. Uh, it currently serves 483 youth age 13 to 24. In 2015 alone, we are enrolled 118 newly infected youth age 15 to 24. Uh, we transition youth out at age 25. We have flexible appointments and a walk-in capacity. And it is a medical home uh, with a multidisciplinary model of care that includes gynecologic services, mental health services and prevention and case management. Some of our uh, mental health and treatment goals include um, informing patients about access to benefits, entitlements, and services. We strongly promote adherence to the uh, antiretroviral regimens and try and address crises as they arise, such as homelessness. Uh, We try and assess and expand social support. Uh, We have self-care. Uh, We support youth in self-care and life-enhancing practices, uh, and we try and identify and treat chronic problems, especially related to mental health, such as uh, depression and substance abuse. We promote life skills in in terms of living independently and try and reinforce and sustain safer sex behaviors and promoting harm reduction and encouraging um, uh, treatment onto drug programs. One of our other key goals in the clinic is to effect a seamless transition after age 25. In terms of that key issue around adherence, providers need to consider and address whether the, the young person believes the medication is going to help, whether the young person will trust the healthcare provider, whether the individual has social support, has potentially disclosed the status, his HIV status. Um, to other individuals who are part of the support system, um, and is uh, another key component is to try and assess and change risky behaviors, um, and behaviors also that will negatively influence the course of illness. Oftentimes we know that many youth respond um, best with some form of reward and certainly positive reinforcement and continuous encouragement throughout this process. What about prevention efforts um, amongst youth in the U.S. and globally? There's sort of uh, a body of work. Uh, There are currently uh, uh, initiatives in South Africa with uh, companies that are selling beer, that are providing condoms to clients at the same time. Uh, But I'm also going to talk about a number of interventions, uh, including circumcision. I'm going to talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, and the benefits of these interventions in terms of preventing HIV. So a few words on circumcision. Um, There were three large randomized controlled trials um, from South Africa, Uganda, and Kenya. Uh, these trials between 2002 to 2006, these trials had to be stopped early because of the significant uh, favorable findings uh, uh, during the interim analysis, which seemed to show that amongst heterosexual um, men, the acquisition of HIV um, uh, seemed to uh, really go down by about 38 or 38 to 66 percent, and that there were few adverse aff- effects. Uh, from the intervention. Further work has sort of come up from that report from the Cochrane database. And this looked at male circumcision for prevention of homosexual acquisition of HIV in men. It appeared to show that male circumcision may be protective among men having sex with men who practice primarily insertive anal sex, but the role of circumcision overall in the prevention of HIV uh, and other STIs, uh, remained required um, further investigation. So the jury may still be out uh, in that group, but certainly in respect of heterosexual s- transmission in sub-Saharan Africa, circumcision certainly makes uh, a positive difference. A few words on prep, and again the Cochrane. Uh, there was a Cochrane review looking at pre-exposure prophylaxis for prevention of HIV uh, in high-risk individuals, and they looked at six randomized control trials uh, with close to 10,000 participants. Uh, Individuals received um, a nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitor called tenofovir uh, with or without mtricitabine, and these these data uh, were compared with placebo. Uh, A conclusion based on a forest plot really seemed to show that PrEP with tenofovir alone or with PrEP with tenofovir with emtricitabine reduced the risk of HIV acquisition in high-risk individuals, including serodiscordant relationships, uh, men having sex with men, and other high-risk men and women. The other bit of evidence that came forward recently uh, was from Myron Cohen's group in the HPTN052 study, uh, where they looked at treatment as prevention in close to on to 2,000 discordant couples. This study sort of very elegantly showed that if you initiated antiretroviral therapy early, that led to a 96% reduction of sexual transmission of HIV-1 in these discordant couples. There are newer uh, interventions coming in. There's a particular uh, integrase inhibitor called uh, cabotegravir, uh, which can be injected and is long acting. And there are some animal data uh, looking uh, into uh, macaques uh, who were challenged with a particular virus, SHIV, which is a particular viral analogue of HIV, which is very pathogenic. And what the the investigators were able to show was, or demonstrate was 88% protection in 21 of the 24 uh, macaques uh, who were challenged with this virus. So based on that, there are further studies uh, that have taken place with this particular drug. uh, looking at long-acting preparations in combination with a non-nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitor called lupivirin. Um, we're still looking at the using this as a potential treatment regimen. Um, but I think um, from one of the uh, future studies, the ECLAIR study, uh, what we're beginning to see is the possibility that we will... At one, they arrive inserting drugs like cabotegravir and rilpivirine intramuscularly every two to three months. Uh, there's still some work looking at trough concentrations and pharmacologic data uh, to work out the appropriate dosing interval uh, and to look at issues around safety and acceptability and tolerability of these interventions. But it's cer- certainly something, um, uh, an intervention uh, for the future which will improve, obviously, adherence tremendously, uh, especially in folks who oftentimes find it difficult to take oral medications on a daily basis. The other interventions that are being looked at, and more so in uh, settings outside the United States, are the dapivirin ring uh, for HIV prevention in women. As I mentioned, young women, Uh, are particularly at risk for HIV infection, Uh, particularly we see in in, uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Asia, and other settings. Uh, This particular ring is a silicon ring uh, that basically can be coated with a drug like adapivirin, which is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. Um, The ring actually releases the drug Um, and only needs to be replaced uh, every month, uh, and can be taken out uh, when either pregnancy is desired or during breastfeeding. And so there are phase three sister studies taking place right now. The Aspire study has trial sites enrolling about 3,500 women in South Africa, Uganda, Zimbabwe, and Malawi. Uh, And we'll look forward to some of the uh, data sets that come from both this study and the RING study, uh, which will be enrolling women from South Africa and Uganda. Okay, So we're going to finish up, finally, in terms of a discussion on transition to adult care. There are some data, uh, again coming out from the UK, which really shows concern about young people when they leave pediatric clinics and move into adult clinics in terms of uh, reta- being retained in care and taking medications. And maybe to highlight that, the investigators demonstrated increased mortality once young folks uh, moved into adult clinics. Uh, amongst perinatally infected youth, 82% of deaths occurred with poor adherence and advanced HIV disease. Oftentimes. Uh, individuals were not receiving that same intensity of support that they would have previously had in a pediatric clinic. And that certainly is a concern that uh, we have to initiate and affect a seamless transition into uh, adult HIV care uh, once we reach age 25 or earlier, depending on the clinic setting. So some of the um, recommendations put forward uh, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which was published a few three years ago, uh, include uh, developing a written, individualized transition plan to address medical, psychosocial and financial aspects of transitioning, to identify adult care providers with expertise in providing care to youth, addressing barriers caused by a lack of information, stigma or disclosure concerns. Preparing youth for life skills development, including self-efficacy, and managing medications, insurance, and entitlements. Identifying an optimal clinic model that's appropriate for that young person. Engaging in regular multidisciplinary case conferences between both the adult provider and the adolescent care provider. Implementing interventions that may be associated with improved outcomes including support groups and mental health consultation and incorporating family planning uh, component into clinical care and beginning these discussions early on it isn't very effective to start that discussion uh, just a few months before transition it has to be something that transition has to be discussed at least a few years before the transition date I'm going to finish, finally, um, in terms of uh, some of my anecdotal observations working in the South. I've often seen with young people as almost sort of generational trauma that they're reporting when they come into clinic. One of the difficult and most challenging areas is trying to intervene with uh, trauma-informed care And thinking through this, I'm oftentimes inspired by the Dalai Lama who sort of said, if you don't love yourself, you cannot love others. You will not be able to love others. If you have no compassion for yourself, then you're not able of developing compassion for others. And so there are a number of novel interventions trying to address trauma. As I said, I feel this is almost generational in the South, that this trauma hasn't uh, occurred to this individual from this lifetime, but it's almost been uh, handed down over many, 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 many decades. And maybe uh, uh, interventions uh, that in uh, such as sort of uh, cognitively-based compassion therapy or meditation will help um, uh, bring some closure. Uh, on that trauma. And this is certainly an emerging area of investigation, both in terms of neuroimaging and also looking at immunologic aspects, that the actual intervention itself may also reduce inflammation uh, and activation at the level of T cells. So, in summary, uh, Today's talk has talked about the epidemiology of the HIV epidemic amongst uh, adolescents and young adults in the United States and globally. I've spoken about why youth are so vulnerable to HIV acquisition and a range of associated negative health outcomes. I've spoken about the outcome, why why there's increased vulnerability, and we see this in youth, and uh, and the causes of that and what practice interventions that there are to improve linkage retention or the HIV care continuum, and what prevention interventions uh, there are. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge, particularly, my lifetime mentor, Dr. Jim Oleski, who inspired me uh, to go into uh, pediatric HIV medicine. Uh, I also take a lot of inspiration from these men, and many of the sayings that, they, uh, that, that they've said over the years. I'm quoting here the poet Rabindranath Tagore, who is there uh, next to Albert Einstein, uh, when he said, Don't limit a child to your own learning, for he was born in another time. I'm obviously inspired by Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. King, uh, having lived living in, out in Atlanta. But even more so, I'm inspired by this young man, uh, this is in Cozy Johnson. I first saw him uh, give a speech at the International AIDS Conference uh, in Durban in 2000. Uh, he spoke before the uh, South African Premier Thabo Mbeki. Uh, he, was, uh, he, suv- he survived for just one year before he succumbed to AIDS um, uh, after this, this conference. I remember what he said, do all you can with what you have, in the time you have, in the place you are. And the other quote, the the other thing that is oftentimes quoted for, which is care for us and accept us. We are all human beings. We're normal. We have hands. We have feet. We can walk. We can talk. We have needs just like everyone else. Don't be afraid of us. We're all the same thank you for your attention.
0: Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.